Amen. Thank you very much, Tricia. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open in the text if you have one, whether it is paper or whether it's a smartphone, so that we can go through the text together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray, God, that you would help us understand it increasingly more and more. Father, we know this time of the year is joyous for so many people. And we know, God, that there are so many reasons of why people gather and celebrate. But Lord, we, your people, want to make sure that our hearts are firmly planted and why we take time to remember Christmas. The only reason is because Jesus Christ has come. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that the same joy that they experienced when they saw you, that it would be the joy that would fill our hearts during this season. Even in the midst of our challenges, even in the midst of the difficulties that we face, that we would increasingly be thankful to know that Jesus Christ has come. And because Jesus Christ has come, we know that he went to the cross on our behalf. And for that, we are so deeply thankful today. We pray that your word would increasingly come alive today, we ask. In your name, amen. It's fitting that we have little children in our service with us today, right? And as we talk about the child Jesus that the Magi came to see, that we have cute little ones in our midst, amen? And I say that because... Little children make noise. I don't know if you guys know that. And uh, sometimes they speak loud and they don't understand why they need to sit through this. And we don't expect them to. And so if they make noise and if they're a little rambunctious, we're okay with that. It's a sign that they're alive, which is always a good thing, right? Amen? So we're okay with that. So so should you. That's, what, that's, what, that's my encouragement to you. Matthew is a Jewish tax collector. And he became one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he's writing here to his own Jewish people. And his intention is to prove that Jesus is the Savior. He is the one that God promised to send. He does so by quoting the Old Testament more than 50 times, showing how Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies of the anticipated king that God would come, that would send to earth to establish his kingdom. And Matthew shows us repeatedly how God is faithful to accomplish his promises. How many of you know if there's one thing that kids don't forget is when you make a promise. Dad, you said, and it could be something that you said two years ago. They remember, but they can't remember that five minutes ago you asked them to empty out the dishwasher. Or that they should clean their room or make their beds. But dad, you said two years ago, that I could get a PlayStation 5 when it came out. You're too old. Andrew, you don't have to. He's married now. He's got to figure it out. If he wants a PS5, he's got to ask Katie to get him one. You got one? You got <laughs> From my dad. You're a good man, Andrew. If you guys want a PS5, go speak to Brother Andrew. This Christmas season, we're going to look at Matthew. And we're going to look at how he specifically uses Old Testament prophecies regarding the birth of Jesus. He begins proving that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah by providing Jesus' genealogy. The first, the first words in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. 
Matthew spends these first 17 verses showing Jesus how he is a direct descendant from Abraham. The one God called to be the father of the nation of Israel. And most importantly, King David. Israel's greatest king. You see, God promised King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, that from David's descendants, a king would come who would establish an everlasting kingdom. Look at what it says. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The people of Israel know this promise, and they're anticipating the coming of their king who will lead them. They knew that he would be a descendant of David and from the tribe of Judah, just like David. You see, when the angel appears to Mary, announcing the divine conception, we see in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, that the angel confirms this Old Testament promise. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. You see, Matthew then will spend the rest of the first chapter sharing how the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, who is questioning whether he should take Mary to be his wife, because now she's already pregnant. And he is wrestling through whether he should continue to be a good man and take her as his wife, even though that she is pregnant. And the angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid. Because it is God that has been at work in her. Remember this, because this is the text that we are going to cover on Christmas Eve. Yes, next week we'll have an, an announcement that we will have a Christmas Eve service on Sunday December the 24th at 10 a.m. here right in our service. And we're going to be covering this text at the end of Matthew chapter 1 where we'll be looking at Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. But today we pick up our text in Matthew chapter 2. The first thing, a worthy king. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the first thing that becomes obvious to us after reading the end of verse one, of chapter 1 is that there is a time gap between Matthew 1 and Matthew chapter 2. You see, Matthew states, as a matter of fact now, that Jesus is born in the city of Bethlehem. But he doesn't tell us how this happens. He just does. Matthew sees no need to cover the details regarding Jesus' actual birth. Or for that matter, how Joseph and Mary have made the 145-kilometer walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But Matthew, he fills in this portion of the Christmas, sorry. But Luke fills in this portion of the Christmas story for us. So if you have your Bibles, it will be on the, on the screen. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We're going to read together. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, Quir when Quirinius, the governor of Caesarea, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The Roman emperor at the time is Caesar Augustus. And he decrees that a census be taken, wanting everyone in his, in his empire to be registered. So Joseph 
has to travel from Nazareth, which is in the north of Israel, to Bethlehem, which is in the south, because he is of the tribe of Judah. Mary is pregnant, and she must travel along with him to be registered because she is going to become Joseph's wife. And it's in Bethlehem that Jesus is born. And the significance of this will become even clearer to us when we get to verse 6. Matthew tells us that all of this takes place in the days of Herod the king. Herod, who was called Herod the Great, is the king of the province of Judea, having Roman authority to govern, to govern. Here's what we need to know. He is not of royal descent, nor is he Jewish. His father was an Arab and had achieved political standing with the emperor. And because he had, his father allowed his son, Herod, to be governor over all of Judea. Herod was a great builder. He was the one who, rebelt, who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And he was able to instill peace over that region when others before him could not. How did he do this? Well, Herod was an evil and cruel leader. He was extremely paranoid. So much so, and listen, he was so paranoid that he killed his favorite wife and two of his sons, who he thought wanted to kill him. If he killed his favorite wife, I wonder what he did to his other wives. Don't laugh. The people feared him. And during Herod's reign, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying to King Herod, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Wise men came from the east. We don't know how many came. Remember that. We believe that it was three, but there's no indication of that. The only reason why people think that there were three wise men is because at the end of our text, they offered how many gifts? Three. But there is no indication in the text that were, they were just three that came. Wise men, a group of them came to, to, sorry, to Jerusalem. These men, they aren't wise because they have accumulated earthly wisdom over time. A better name or term to call these men are magi. These men studied astrology. They're experts in the stars and constellations, and many believe that they could even interpret dreams. These men are likely from Babylon, as the magi served in the Babylonian uh, in the Babylonian court for the king. So these men would have had official titles. What prompts them coming to Jerusalem? Well, they've come because they say that they, have, that they want to see the one who was born king of the Jews. You see, the person that they're seeking is of royal descent and will reign over the people of Israel. And it doesn't matter that this king is a child. You see, they're very specific in what they say. This child isn't born to become a king one day. He's born king of the Jews. This is his royal title from the moment of his birth. And Matthew wants us to know that there is nothing that Jesus will have to do to become king because he is already king. How do the Magi know to come to Jerusalem? Well, they say that they saw an astrological phenomenon. They saw a star rising. People in the ancient Eastern societies believed that the rising up of a star indicated either that a king had died or that a new king had been born. You see, we need to remember 
that in Babylon, there is still a large contingent of Jewish population. Because if you remember Israel in Judah's history, they are taken into captivity by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. Eventually, the people are released, but many Jews would have stayed in Babylon. These magi would have heard the prophecies of the coming Jewish king, and they take the raising up of this star as a royal sign that a Jewish king has been born. They say, we saw his star. And they were able to determine where the star rose up in the sky. And it indicated to them that a king was born in Israel. So God chooses to reveal the coming of Jesus by miraculously using an astrological occurrence to get the attention of these Gentile magi, magi, to travel close to 1,500 kilometers to come and worship. And I don't know about you, but this would have taken time. You know, historically, what people think is they would have come on camels. And I don't know if you, about you, but camels don't travel really fast. Right? Because we don't have, like, we don't call it camel power in our car. We call it horsepower. There's a reason for that, right? Bad joke, I know, but that's what you're getting today. And so where was the natural place for the Magi to start their discovery? It would have been to come to the capital. And so they come to Jerusalem, which was in the province area of Judea. And they come and they ask for an audience with King Herod. Now that they're in the region of where they saw the star of their king, they need to find out the exact location of where he was born. That's why they have come. They want to ascertain where this king was born. Why? Why do they want to come? What does the text say? They want to what? Worship. They want to pay homage to this new king. It was common in Eastern society to want to show recognition to those who were of royal descent. And this is what they, these Magi want to come and do. <laughs> these men who weren't waiting for Jesus have been shown Jesus by God himself through this astrological phenomenon and they come because they want to worship i wonder whether you and i who've had the opportunity to come to know jesus whether we're just as quick and as willing to want to worship him that's one of the primary reasons we come together and gather we got we come together to worship jesus christ our Savior. We don't come only and primarily to come and to receive from God, which is true, right? That God would teach us through His Word, that we would increasingly grow in understanding who He is and what He's done for us, but we come to play a massive part as well. We don't just come to receive. We come to give to God what He is worthy of receiving, which is our worship. Don't take that lightly. They traveled 1,500 kilometers to come and worship. Some of us don't live very far, and we have a hard time getting up in the morning to get here. God help us, amen? Why? Because he is worthy of our worship. And then in verses 3 to 8, we see a fearful leader. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. 
Herod's, Herod is rattled. And he begins to panic. This is the first he's hearing of this. There's another king. And this new king is of royal descent. Herod feels threatened. Because he knows that he is not Jewish. And he knows that he is not a legitimate king. His authority is imposed over the people by the Roman Empire. And it says that not only is Herod troubled, who else is? All of the people of the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because they know that Herod is a ruthless and paranoid man. He knows that this is an affront to his leadership. And so... They're afraid because Herod will turn the city upside down in order to find this Jewish king to have him killed. And that their lives in, the, in, in, in that season will be in chaos. Imagine every family who has a little child will be afraid that they will potentially lose their son or daughter. So the whole city is now scared. In verse 4, Herod he assembles the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, to help find the birth of this newborn king. In assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ will be born. If anyone knows where this Jewish king was born, it's these men. They're experts of the Old Testament scriptures. The Sanhedrin consisted of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Together, they taught the people of God, and they enforced the Old Testament law. They knew the word of God, and they knew the prophecies of the coming king. And we see that Herod refers to this Jewish king as the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. You see, a Jewish king was installed to take his throne through an anointing ceremony. Olive oil was poured over the head of the king. This anointing ceremony symbolized that the king was divinely set apart by God. Now having the presence of God to lead the people of God, Herod knows that this Jewish king has been anointed by God. He already sees him as the one who God has sent. And this is a problem to him. And how do we know that? Well, if you study the text in the original Greek, it's great because the word inquired here, it's in the imperfect tense. Do you know what that means? It means that Herod didn't just ask the religious leaders one time, hey, where is the Jewish king going to be born? But he insists. He keeps on asking. Hey, hey, where is the Jewish king going to be king? But are, are you sure? Like, is there anywhere else? Is this the only place? Are there any other things in the Old Testament that say he might be anywhere else? Like, I need to have 100% certainty that we know where this Jewish king is going to be born. He insists and insists and insists because he needs to know. And the religious leaders know exactly what Herod is asking. And in verses 5 and 6, they tell him where the Jewish king will be born and how the Jewish king will lead his people. They say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so this is the focus of our text today. This prophecy. These religious leaders, they are quoting from the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. I've put the text up and we've underlined it, I hope. Did we get that Micah text up there? Did we underline it? We did not underline it. But we're going to be looking primarily at verses 2 and then at verses 4. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judea. From, from, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Micah is an Old Testament prophet who lives about 40 kilometers from the city of Jerusalem. He's observing all of the wickedness that is taking place in Judea. He is seeing how the kings are acting ungodly. People have turned away from God. And what do we see historically as Micah is, is, is writing? That Judah goes from having a good king to a bad king, to a good king, to a bad king. And in the midst of him witnessing this, what's happening? Well, the middle class, the average person, is being treated unjustly. People's homes are being taken away through illegal business deals. Farmlands are being stolen, which is leading primarily to women and children being mistreated because people and families now have nothing to survive on. The weak and the poor are being ignored while Judas kings and the people who live in the capital live in luxury off of the hard work of the poor. So Micah writes as if we as the readers are observing a courtroom scene. Well, we're, we're watching. And the first part of Micah focuses on God indicting Judah for acting corruptly against their own people. God brings judgment because their hearts are far from him. They must repent and turn back to him. And historically, guess what happens? They do not. And about 150 years after Micah's prophecy, Judah is taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. Look at Micah 4.10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. You see, Micah prophesizes this, and about 150 years later, because the people do not repent and turn back to God, they are taken all into captivity. The second half of the book of Micah we see that God promises to restore Judah and the capital city of Jerusalem. He says that he will come to rescue them and that he will establish an everlasting kingdom. It's in this section that Micah prophesizes that God will bring from a small and insignificant town called Bethlehem a ruler, a king, who will shepherd the people of Israel. Micah prophesizes these words some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Why must Jesus be born in Bethlehem? Remember God's promise to King David. We already read it. We'll read it again. 2 Samuel 7. We're just going to read verse 13 this time. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the promise that God gives to King David. King David was born in Bethlehem and is from the tribe of Judah. Remember Joseph, Jesus' father. He is from Bethlehem. And he has come to Bethlehem because of the census. They have traveled. And as a result of this, where is Jesus born? In 
Bethlehem. Jesus, the king of the Jews, is born exactly where God said he would and according to where the prophet Micah said that he would be born. And in this, we see God fulfill this prophecy. We see in this that God is faithful to what? Fulfill the promise that he had made to King David. Someone from your lineage, one of your descendants will come and will be an everlasting king. We see God sovereignly bringing about his plan of salvation as Jesus enters the world. Jesus is a legitimate king. He is of royal blood of the house of David. God is making good on his promises. Jesus is king. Jesus is not only king. Micah also says that this Jewish king will shepherd his flock, the people of Israel. You see, a shepherd is responsible for the care and the well-being of a sheep. This is how Jesus is going to lead his people. Jesus says in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd, and we are his sheep. And he says that he willingly lays down his life for us. He has come. To endure the cross so that you and I could have our sins forgiven and to be restored back to God. Uh, Jesus says a few verses later in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows us and he knows everything that you and I need. And he promises to care for us. And he also wants us to know him. He says, the sheep know me. Because he is our good shepherd. We are to seek his word. To know his will for our lives. He is the one who leads us and guides us through the Holy Spirit. As we celebrate Christmas and the coming of Jesus... It's important that you and I no longer see him as just a child. You see, Jesus is our king. And he has come to rule and reign in our lives, which means that every part of us must be under his lordship. Jesus came as king, not to be king. The question is, is he king in your life? Are you allowing him to rule and reign in every area, in every thought, in every decision? But not only is Jesus our king, he's also our shepherd. He is the one who cares for our well-being. And he wants us to know him as he knows us. And he wants to be the one who leads us and guides us through his word and through his Holy Spirit. The question is, will we allow him to be our shepherd? I don't know if you know this, but just truthfully speaking, sheep are not that intelligent. So that says something about you and me. Remember, I said this, you and me. So I'm including myself. Unfortunately, we think that we know best and that we know enough and that we know what's right or wrong. And so we go about making decisions in our lives and living our lives. And then when we trip hard enough and fall on our faces, we eventually cry out to Jesus. Because somehow we think that we have it all figured out until we don't. And then we finally run to Jesus. But let me just tell you that Jesus wants to be our good shepherd always and often. 
that there is no reason why you and I have to fall flat on our faces to learn the lesson that we're really not that intelligent and we don't have it all figured out. We need to humble ourselves to remember that we are his sheep and that he is our shepherd and that he will lead us and guide us to his will. I don't say that as a put down. I say that that our king loves us so much that he died for us so that he can lead us and guide us. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your shepherd? And then in verses 7 and 8, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. If you look closely at verse 7, Herod consults the religious leaders without the Magi being there. Do you get that? The Magi are not present. This is a really important detail. You see, the religious leaders don't know that the Magi have come inquiring about the king who has been born. You see, Herod is trying to control the narrative. He doesn't want word to spread and to get out that there's a legitimate, real Jewish king now. And so what does he do? He speaks to the religious leaders alone, gets the information that he needs, and then what does he do? He calls the Magi back secretly now. This meeting would have not been on the books. That's what it means. There is no evidence that he is meeting with these, 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 these Magi again. And now that he knows where the king is born, Bethlehem, he wants to know when they what? Saw the star. Why? Because he wants to ascertain how old this child king is. So that as he goes and finds him, which we're going to see in the weeks ahead in our text, that this is Herod's intention. You guys see there in the text, right? He tells them, he tells them my guy to do what? Go. Go search diligently in Bethlehem for where this, this Jewish king is and then bring word back to me. Because I too want to what? Yeah, right. Herod has no intention of worshiping. He has every intention of killing Jesus. He's trying to control the narrative to make sure that this kind of stays in-house and quiet. But here's the funny part. No matter how hard Herod tries, there is nothing that he can do to stand in the way or stop the plan of God. That was a good place for you to agree with Bruno and say amen. Oh yeah. There is nothing that this illegitimate King Herod can do to stop God from sending his king to earth. Oh, he will try. But nothing and no one can stand in the way. Have you guys ever noticed that it's so obvious sometimes when people have the wrong intentions when they're doing stuff? I don't know. I hope too that we would be the kind of people who would recognize that in ourselves. But Herod is just scared and afraid because he's afraid of losing his own power. Worshiping the king, verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that, had, that they had seen it... And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came and rested over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so now, Herod has communicated to the Magi where the king is born. And now they set off on their way to go into Bethlehem and to go and search for him. This would have only taken them a few hours because Bethlehem is only like about eight kilometers south of Jerusalem. 
they would have made this walk in two or three hours. But something happens suddenly. As they begin to journey towards Bethlehem, what do they see in the sky? They see the same star that they saw in Babylon, which indicated to them that a king was born. They see it again, and now the star is literally giving them GPS coordinates of where they need to go. Better than Google Maps, better than anything. And they're astonished that they're literally seeing as they're walking towards Bethlehem where the star is indicating to them where Jesus and his mother can be found. Now, now just to clarify, there wouldn't be like a white beaming light coming off the star to say that it's in this house, but that it would have been in the general vicinity of the place in Bethlehem where Jesus was. And then when the Magi get there, they would have asked the locals, hey, do you guys know of anyone who just had a baby? Because we don't want to also over-spiritualize the text. Right? You know like that, those sounds like, ah. This was a supernatural occurrence of God leading these Gentile men to come and worship King Jesus. But they still would have had to do their part of walking there and actually finding the exact home where he was. But how do they respond by the star leading them? They rejoice. And how do they rejoice? Exceedingly. Like they're really excited. Like really excited. What gets you really excited? What? What gets us really excited? I wonder... But these people who don't know King Jesus are really excited because they're going to go and see King Jesus. Like, how about you and me? I, I wonder, like, you know, one of the things that we say about the church, and when I mean the church, I mean the people, you know what's one of the things that we say? Oh, church is so boring. Have you guys ever heard that? You know why church is boring? I'm going to tell you why. It's because of you. It's amazing to me. I know people who have sat for 12 hours, watched the Lord of the Rings extended version in one day, and they're not tired, and they sit there for 50 minutes, and they're like, tired. I don't get it. And I say this sincerely because it rattles me. And it rattles me because where is our joy? Like, what is our joy rooted in? You want to see your kids happy this Christmas? You do? Buy them lots of gifts. And you'll see if they will have joy. Yes or no? It's not real joy. Why? Because two days later, they're going to want something else. I don't know about your kids. Okay, this is my kids. But where is our joy rooted in? Like if our joy isn't rooted in knowing that we're coming together as a family to hear about God's word, to learn to him and to worship him, I don't know what our joy is rooted in. Throw 50,000 people into a soccer stadium. You want to see joy? Watch, let the team score and see what happens. Yes or no? People are euphoric. People do crazy things because of a round piece of leather that gets thrown into a net. Or a little piece of rubber, a hockey puck, that gets scored. People go crazy. Get into fights. Because they're team. What? And then the king of kings comes, and we gather together to hear his word, and we're like, this is so boring. Man, wake up. I'm not sure what your faith is rooted in. Because if it's rooted in the Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for your sin, you should be jumping out of your chair for joy. And if you're not, let me just be honest, that is the general reality of the state of your heart that you've got to deal with. And you've got to pray that the Lord would fill you with that joy. Man, can you imagine traveling 1,500 kilometers to go to church? And I remember when I moved to Burlington, 
um, I was still attending a church in Toronto. Everybody that I would speak to said I was crazy. Oh, you're so crazy, man. Why are you going to a church in Toronto? Don't they have churches in Burlington? I'm like, yeah, no, but this is my church. Oh, but don't you got to get up early? I'm like, don't you have to get up early for work? Yeah, but it's Sunday. I'm like, what? So you'll get up to go make money, but you won't get up to get up early to go to church to go meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I'm a little lost. Help me understand. And then you get like dumb stares from people. And then you look at them with the dumb face back. And you hope that, the, you, that they know that they're the dumb ones. I say that lovingly. And you're like, I don't know how you can. Where is our hearts? If our hearts are not ready to come and worship King Jesus, where are our hearts if on the way here we're not so joyful that we're coming together to be able to lift up Jesus Christ, to sing and to give him our worship and praise because he is worthy. These Gentiles came to worship. And, and what did they do? They, they enter the home. And when they enter the home, they, they see the child. Now, this word is very, very important to us. They, did, they see, did they see the baby? They saw the what? There was another word for baby. They used, Matthew uses the word what? Child. Jesus, by this point, would, would have been somewhere between six months old to just under two years old. It's important that we understand that. Because the star rises in, in, uh, in Babylon when? When Jesus the king is born. These men still have to travel 1,500 kilometers to come. So that conception that Jesus isn't like, you know, like he's like three weeks old or like the next day is wrong. And we'll, we're going to see this the next two weeks because Herod will have all of the children who are under two years put to death. Why? Because of this timeline. And when they come and when they see King Jesus, the child, these foreign dignitaries who have come all the way from Babylon, who have traveled so far, the only thing that they can muster up doing is what? to fall to the ground, to prostrate themselves before the king as a sign of showing that they're placing themselves under his authority and rule. And then they open up their treasure chest and they take out precious metals, gold, and they take out expensive spices, frankincense and myrrh. And they've come to worship the king They've come and they've brought them their best. You know, this was again common in the Eastern societies that when you came and you presented yourself before a king, that you would bring luxurious gifts that were in line with his position of a th supreme authority over you. You brought your what? Your what? Your best. And just, again, to clarify one maybe misconception that happens very often, people are like, oh, but where's Joseph? Is he not there? Well, he's likely there. He's just not the focus <clears throat> of what it is that Matthew was saying. The, the, the focus here is, is that the Magi have come to what? To worship. They said that to Herod, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. And now they're before the king of the Jews. And what are they doing? Worshiping. And then we see God still at work in verse 12. What happens? He warns the Magi in a dream to what? To not go back home the same way. Why? Because God knows Herod's intentions. And so they choose to go a different route. Guess what? They probably take even a longer way to get home. And they avoid going through Jerusalem and Judea so that they don't have to confront the king or have the king want to have an audience with them. And again, what do we see? God's sovereignty at work, making sure that he is the one accomplishing his purposes. Stand with me.
I want you to think of the key events in this text. <laughs> Jesus is led to be born in Bethlehem because he uses the most, because God uses who? The most powerful man in the world at the time, Caesar Augustus, to register everybody in his empire, which forces Joseph and Mary to have to travel so far to come to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem because God had promised to King David that it would be someone from his lineage that would come to be the everlasting king and because Micah had prophesied that it would be in the little town of Bethlehem where the ruler of the world would come to lead his people. And then we see the little Magi To worship Jesus. And then they leave a different way than what they came. Matthew is telling us look at what God has said, and look at what God has done. You see, God is always faithful to his promises. And I pray, my brothers, my sisters, my friends, that this Christmas, that as we look at the word of God and the Christmas story, that what would ring true in our hearts, in our lives, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus has come because God said he would. And Jesus has come and God has made a way for him to come, and he has come to be your king and your shepherd, my king and my shepherd. I pray that this Christmas, that this would ring so ever true and loud in our lives and in our hearts more than the great food, more than being with family and friends, more than the gifts under the tree, more than days off of rest, and all of those things are good, I pray that we as the people of God would never lose the meaning and significance of Christmas. Jesus, our King and Shepherd, has come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us worship God together.